Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church. My name is Chris Colquitt. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's my joy to welcome you this morning. If you're new uh, to Trinity, I'd love to meet you. I'm going to try to be hanging out in the back after the service and would, would love to shake your hand uh, and get to know you. We are uh, in the middle of a series that will take us through a lot of the year in the book of Genesis, and we come to something of a conclusion today of a mini-section that we've been doing in Genesis 1 and 2. We've done five sermons in Genesis 1 and 2, and next week the fall happens. So uh, you can come back for that. This week, though, we are going to read about the seventh day and also a little bit from Genesis 2 about the tree of life. So we'll be reading Genesis 1, 31 through 2, 3, and then 2, 8 through 9. I'll give your attention to God's word. Thus, no, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done and creation, and then verse 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Great God in heaven, We do rejoice and thank you for the privilege of gathering this morning, called by your word, gathered in your name to hear the glorious news of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we couldn't know you if you didn't reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you have, and we pray now that you would be with us as we attend to that revelation, Lord, that the same spirit who breathed out these words, the same spirit who breathed out creation would be among us working, Lord, that I might speak truly and clearly and boldly and joyfully of the things of the gospel and that all of us might rejoice in our salvation, trusting in Christ alone as our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. So throughout the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, God is doing something that we haven't noticed yet. He's not just creating the stuff of the world. He's not just creating the living things of the world. But he's actually creating and ordering time itself. We see this on day one when he creates day and night. We see it on day four where he makes the moon and the sun, which are for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. So the moon and the sun mark day and night. And their rotation... Marks fall and winter and spring and summer. And then last of all, on day seven, he creates the week. He creates a seventh day, he blesses it, and he makes it holy. And as he does that, he creates the week that all of us experience week in and week out from all of history. The week is a creation reality, and a special holy day within the week, one in seven is a creation reality that God makes at the very beginning. He blesses it and makes us holy. 
And he invites his people over the course of redemptive history to participate in this seventh-day rest as a living parable of the gospel, a living parable of his relationship to us. So what I want us to do this morning is think about the meaning of the Sabbath day, the meaning of this living parable that we're invited into. And we're going to do that across redemptive history, across the course of the Bible. You'll see there's some extra verses printed for you in your bulletin. We'll get there in a second. What we're going to see is that there is both a stable core meaning to the Sabbath, something that's true at the very beginning and is still true today, but there's also development over time. The core meaning is that the Sabbath, and this gives away most of the sermon, the Sabbath is a forward-looking day. It's a day in which we look forward to the consummation, to our final rest. It's a day that the people of God look up from the here and now of everyday life and look to God and look to the future. That's the core. It doesn't change. But what we're going to see is that as redemptive history flows, as we go from the Garden of Eden to the nation of Israel to the church today, the pattern and the practice of the Sabbath shifts slightly, and the meaning is unfolded in new and rich ways as we go. That's where we're headed today, just as a, as a, as a marker. And so our, our outline is going to track that history. We're going to look at first the Sabbath in Eden, second the Sabbath in Israel, and third the Sabbath in Christ. So Eden, Israel, and Christ will mark our time. So let's begin at the beginning. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 2. What does the seventh-day Sabbath mean at creation? What's the point? What's the significance? The first thing we want to see is what it doesn't mean. And we read from Isaiah in our call to worship. We can go to Psalms and see the same thing. It does not mean that God was tired. God was not tired on the seventh day. He didn't need a break. The Sabbath for him was not about restorative rest. And here we need to be careful because we live in a time when we might be tempted to turn the Sabbath or turn rest into just that. The Sabbath is about rest. Rest is good for us. There's deep spiritual significance to rest and to sleeping and to our finitude. All of that is true. And yet the Lord's day, this holy day of the seventh, is not an instrumental thing to make us better workers for the next six days that are to come. There's something deeper here because for God, God didn't need restorative rest. We live in a time of self-care and self-actualization. People study how to just optimize our being. Rest is good for that. It's not the point of the Sabbath. Okay? There's something more here. There's a deeper meaning. That deeper meaning, I'll use a word that I think works, is consummation. The rest of the day seven, the rest of day seven is not the rest of God's exhaustion. The rest of day seven is the rest of God's completion. He stops, not because he's tired, but because he's finished. Okay? Y'all tracking? He stops because he's done. And that is the deep significance of the Sabbath day. It's a symbol of God's consummation, of his completion a celebration of God being done. And as it relates to man, as we participate in the Sabbath, it is then and continues to be a symbol of our eventual rest in the final consummated state of God. 
So the Sabbath points us forward to our final rest. It pointed Adam and Eve forward to their final rest. We see this unfolded in the rest of the scriptures, and here's where those two New Testament texts are going to help us. First, Hebrews 4, which I printed there for you in your bulletin. Hebrews, which is such a magnificent book. Um, In chapter 4, the author of the Hebrews is engaging with Psalm 95, and he's talking about the rest that is promised there. And here's what he says. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the author of the Hebrews is recognizing that rest, the Sabbath rest, points forward to our eternal rest, to eternal life in heaven. That's underlined then by the second symbol of consummation that we find in the garden, which is the tree of life. We read that section on purpose because the tree of life has this particular meaning in relation to eternal life. We saw it in Genesis 2.9. And then in Genesis 3, which we're going to get to next week, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God talks about the tree of life. And he, he says he needs to kick them out in part so that they do not reach out their hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. This tree of life that's in the garden is somehow related to eternal life. And what's really cool is if you go to the very end of your Bible in Revelation chapter 22, which is there in your bulletin, so you don't have to flip there, we see the tree of life shows up again in the consummated eternal rest of God. I'll read this all because it's just so beautiful. We only really need a couple of verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street and of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship it. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will have no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And then verse 14, a few verses later, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. The new heavens and the new earth, the tree of life is there, eternal life is there, and, and those who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ and been redeemed and invited in, they have the right to eat of that tree. And so here in the garden, we have these two symbols at the very beginning, that are designed to take our hearts and our minds to the very end. You all see that? So the Sabbath and the tree of life point Adam and Eve, and us as we read this, to the final thing, to the finish, to the finale, to the consummation. Gerhardus Voss, who I'm going to quote a few times today, awesome Dutch-American theologian, you should read him, uh, he famously observes of Genesis chapter one, or chapter 1 and 2 that eschatology precedes soteriology. Now, those are two words that you may not know, and that's fine, but I'm, they're, they're so important, I'm going to tell, tell you about them, okay? Eschatology means last things, so the final state precedes, in Revelation, soteriology. Soteriology means salvation. And so what Voss is observing is that here in the garden, Before there is a need of saving, we talk about being saved, that's soteriology, 
There is eschatology. There is the last thing. There is the final state. Eschatology precedes soteriology. Now, what, is, what difference does that make? Well, it means that Adam and Eve in the very beginning had a purpose and a destiny and a destination. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. Their work would eventually lead to, if faithfully performed, their reward, their rest, eating of the tree of life and eternal life with God. Voss, I think in another place, I don't have the reference here, he also said this, in the Sabbath, in the tree of life, man is reminded that this way of life is not an aimless existence, that a goal lies beyond. So Adam and Eve, they saw the tree, they saw the Sabbath, and they knew that there was something to come. And in the deal they had with God in this covenant of works, that meant that for six days they would work and one they would rest. They would work and then they would rest. They would work and then they would rest. And their working was unto their rest. They rested after their works and that was the deal. If they were faithful and obedient in their labors, there would be rest for them. There was this lesson, this living parable in the way they did their life, work unto rest. Y'all tracking? That's the forward-looking Sabbath and its initial revelation. Okay. Now, Sabbath in Israel, second point. When God gives his law to Israel, following his deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the Sabbath appears. And it's a core feature of that law. It's a part of the moral law as revealed in the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment we'll talk about in a second. It's also part of the ceremonial law in Leviticus 23 and 25. This law that forms the rhythms, the movements, the calendar of the temple. So Sabbath is really important when God gives his law to his people after delivering them from Egypt. And when we look at this Sabbath revelation to Israel, the first thing we can see is that the core meaning remains. That core meaning is there, and yet there's some development. And the best place to see that, and I didn't print this for you because they wouldn't let me have that many pages, um, is in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Here's a good, this is, this is important Bible trivia. Where is the Ten Commandments are found? They're found in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. There's two places the Ten Commandments show up in the Bible. Initially at Sinai, and then as the people of God are going back and are preparing to go in the promised land, as the covenant is being renewed, they're announced again in Deuteronomy 5. Okay, why do I say that? Because it's interesting that they're identical Except, in this particular way, around the Sabbath, there's an important difference. So I'm going to read to you Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. And then here's the key thing. This is 2011. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here in Exodus 20, it's the basic creational meaning. It's tied to creation and to God's setting apart that day. He created in six, he finished and rested on the seventh. That's the initial justification for the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20. We just talked about that. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in verses 12 to 15, it's almost the exact same description of the Sabbath command. But instead of a reference to creation, in verse 15, here's what it says. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand 
and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Y'all see the difference? So in in, in Exodus, Moses justifies the Sabbath on the basis of creation. But here in Deuteronomy, he adds a new layer of meaning, which is the Sabbath doesn't just point to the seventh day of creation. It points to the people of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. They rest, right, in remembrance of their deliverance from slavery. Because, see, for the people of Israel, their work was no longer this happy work of Adam in the garden. The work they remembered was the enslavement in Egypt. And their deliverance invited them into this new rest. Y'all see that? And so as they celebrated the Sabbath, they were still looking forward, but they were seeing that what was forward was redemption, freedom, liberation, deliverance. This is a new layer of meaning. In the garden, Adam's faithful work stood before him and then eternal rest beyond, right? Work and then rest. But after the fall, the eternal rest for the people of God would only come through God's deliverance, his redemption of them, his liberation. And so the Sabbath takes on this meaning. The Sabbath stands for God's liberation, his provision, his blessing. And if we jump over to Leviticus 23, which we're not going to quote, um, That'll be fun when we get to Leviticus in a few years. Uh, It really will. It's going to be awesome. I hope you all don't fire me before that. Um, We see that in the ceremonial laws around the Sabbath, this idea of feasting and of provision and of deliverance is built in. I'm going to summarize this. It'd be fun to do. Maybe we'll do a Bible study on this someday. Um, Leviticus 23 and 25, that's where you want to go if you want to look at this. But what you'll see there is that there is the weekly Sabbath, that's, that's standard. But then there are some additional sabbatical practices. So one is that there are certain feast days, and otherwise, there are a couple of non-feast days, but there are certain additional Sabbaths throughout the year that don't fall on the seventh day. There's also, in then Leviticus 25, a yearly Sabbath. So every seven years, they would not, har- they would not sow or harvest, and the fields would lie fallow, and they would rely on the provision of God. And then the, every seventh, seventh year, so after 49 years, the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee is this remarkable invention of God in Leviticus. And in that year, after seven sevens, that 50th year, all property was returned, all debts were forgiven, and all slaves were freed. And so we have in this sabbatical practice of the people of Israel, this idea of redemption and freedom and liberation working its way in. But it's not all liberation. It's not all feasting yet. And this is, this is really, sorry, I'm nerding out here. The, 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 the exciting part's about to come, but this is, this, some of y'all think this is cool. That's fine. It's not all celebration and feasting. Not all of the Sabbaths were feasts. Because as the people of Israel on the Sabbath looked forward to the end, they not only saw that they needed to be freed, but they saw sin in the way. The temple reminded them that all the time, that they were guilty. And so to to be in God's final rest, something had to happen with respect to their sin that made them unclean, that had kicked them out of the Garden of Eden in the first place. 
And so the most holy days of the year for Israel were the Passover and the Day of Atonement, both of which were these special days dedicated to sacrifice. And as it happens in God's providence, do you know what tomorrow is? Tomorrow is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement came each time in the seventh month of the year. It was, an ext- it was a special Sabbath. It didn't fall on a Saturday, on the seventh day. And it was a day of fasting before God. And it's the day when the high priest would go in once a year to the Holy of Holies and offer this special sacrifice of atonement. In Leviticus 23:32, we read of this particular Sabbath, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which happens tomorrow for the Jewish people. You shall afflict yourself. And so we have in the Old Testament pattern of Sabbaths this fasting element, this affliction, this reminder that we are in sin and we need a sacrifice. But after that comes feasting. And this is what will happen later, right? Because after Yom Kippur comes the Feast of the Tabernacles. Six days later. Five days later. That's not right. It's five days later. And here they celebrate God's provision. It's total feast. So they move from this Sabbath of fasting on Yom Kippur to these two Sabbaths of feasting in the Feast of the Tabernacle. They celebrate God's provision in the grape and olive harvest. And here again, we have this anticipation of their final rest. All right. What's the point? Israel, as as God develops the Sabbath practice within Israel after the fall, we have introduced this element of liberation, of feasting, but also there's this problem of sin. And so the Sabbath sometimes is fasting and sometimes it's feasting. That's, that's, that's the development there, okay? Now, to Christ. What does it look like for us to celebrate the Sabbath in Jesus Christ, to obey the fourth commandment in Jesus Christ? Well, the most notable thing that happens in the New Testament and in the life of the church is that we switch days. The Sabbath moves from being the seventh day of the week, Saturday, to being the first day of the week, Sunday. This is the first day of the Jewish week. And to help us understand the significance of the Christian Sabbath, I want to ask why. Why, do we, why, do we, why are we here on a Sunday instead of a Saturday? Um, what's the point of being here now? Well, there's a few answers, and we're going to work backwards a little bit to the depth of this answer. Um, the first reason we do it is because the church has done it since Christ left, And we see that not just in the history of the early church, but in the Bible itself. John, in Revelation 10, his vision comes, John says, when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which is a reference to Sunday. And since the resurrection, that first day of the week became extremely significant to Christians. Christ rose on the first day of the week on a Sunday. He appeared to the disciples on successive Sundays following that. Pentecost happens on a Sunday. It's, it's the Feast of Weeks. It's another 50th day. Um, that's what Pentecost means. It's a, it's a, anyway, that's, that nerd out. I'm not going to do it. Um, and the church in the New Testament is seen as gathering on the first day of the week. 
for fellowship, for feasting, for prayer and almsgiving. And so we have this pattern, right? But it's not just practice, because it's grounded in this deep meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. Here I'm going to read Voss one more time. Uh, And I read it because it's so good. Augustine said something similar, by the way. Our Lord died on the eve of that Jewish Sabbath at the end of one of those typical weeks of labor by which his work and its consummation were prefigured. And Christ entered upon his rest, the rest of his new eternal life, on the first day of the week, so that the Jewish Sabbath comes to lie in between, and it was, as it were, disposed of, buried in his grave. Christians have noticed that there is a sabbatical pattern to Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus died on the final workday of the Jewish calendar. The final workday of the Old Covenant, Christ went to the cross. That was Friday. He was dead when the sun went down. And that Sabbath was the last Sabbath of the Old Covenant. And then he rose from the dead, victorious over the grave, on the first day of new creation, the day of resurrection, the Sabbath, the day of the Lord. We celebrate on Sunday. We offer ourselves to God on Sunday. We set this day apart because we are a new creation people. We are a new covenant people Christ has inaugurated new creation, and we exist in that first day, the first fruits of new creation, and so we gather on this day. My wife will tell you this. She has a calendar, that, uh, a planner that puts Sunday at the end of the week, and most don't do that. And throw away any calendar you have that puts Sunday at the end of the week because you need to know, you need to see that this first day is the day that we come to the Lord. We rest on the first day of the week. And and behind this is even deeper covenantal gospel meaning. Because remember what Adam and Eve learned with their pattern? They worked for six days and they rested. They worked for six days and then they rested. And as they worked, they were reminded there was a rest ahead for them. And they rested. They looked forward to the day that they would have their rest. They would have their reward. They would eat from the tree of life and eternal life. Christ comes and does the work that Adam could not do. And he is raised to life on the new creation first day. And then he invites you and me to completely turn the pattern on its head. Because if you are in Jesus Christ, you do not need to work for six days before you get to rest. Y'all see that? You rest first. This is the very start of the week. There's lots of things that need to get done, and you are here not doing them. And in that is a picture of the gospel itself, that we do not work unto our rest anymore, but we rest in Christ's work, and then we work out of that rest. You and I get to rest first. We get to rest first We get to feast before we do anything in the week. This is grace. This is the gospel. This is the finished work of Jesus that invites us into the new creation rest that is to come.
Yom Kippur tomorrow will be a whole day of fasting. There's a feast waiting for the Jewish people, but first they need to fast. Here's what's really cool. Yom Kippur for us is squeezed in to about two minutes over here where we confess our sins to God. And we don't sit in that. We don't self-flagellate on Sundays. We don't fast on Sundays. We move straight to the assurance of pardon and then to the proclamation of the gospel. And in a moment, we're going to feast. And we do that every single Sunday, week in and week out. We are a feasting people. This is the rhythm that should mark our lives, and it will transform our lives if we let it. On day one, every week, we come and hear the good news of Jesus proclaimed, and we rest in it, and we celebrate, and we feast. We feast. Exodus 28 tells us to remember the Sabbath day. If you're here this morning, you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ. What it means for you to remember the Sabbath day is to remember that which is prefigured in it and now accomplished in Jesus Christ. It's really cool the way the structures of the week work. It's even, it's not cool, it's not even the right word. It's profoundly beautiful and life-saving and liberating for you to know the substance that is behind it. That Christ has completed all the work that you will ever need to complete. And that you can start this week, this very day, resting in that salvation with nothing more to do. And then you can go out tomorrow and you can work in the joy and gratitude that you find in Jesus Christ. Receive that. Remember that. Christians in this room, we can remember this by obeying the Lord's command. I've not said a lot, not said much. I said anything so far about what it looks like to practice the Sabbath. I did that on purpose, not to run away from it, but because this other stuff was way more important. Brothers and sisters, I want our hearts captivated by this idea that we get to start our day and rest. I want us to see this moment in time in this place, and then this whole day I would invite you as setting apart that we might rest in the final celebration victory of Jesus Christ. You can ask people who have tried to incorporate Sabbath practice into their life, and I can tell you I try. I don't always do it well. But it is bar none the most fruitful spiritual practice that I've ever adopted. Because what we get to do on this day, if you set this day apart, and it's really not about what you can't do, it's about what you can do, which is to give it all to Jesus and to the things of God and to heaven, to feast and festival on this day. You and I get to pre-celebrate heaven week in and week out, not on the basis of our works, but on Christ's. This is an illustration I'm going to leave you with that may or not may not be helpful. Um, I didn't realize this. So in Texas, uh, spring break, we would go skiing. Uh, I was lucky. My parents had a, we could go skiing. So Texans are like dying for some winter, and so we go try to we go find some snow during during spring break. That's what Texans do. Then I moved to Chicago, and and as a, as a Texan, I never really understood why people went to the beach at spring break. It didn't make sense. But then you go to Chicago, brothers and sisters. If everyone ever lived in Chicago, around March, you are you're you're on the verge, right? And 
so you go out and you go somewhere warm. You go to Arizona, you go to Florida, you go to anywhere other than Chicago, which is still, you know, somewhere around freezing in, in mid-March. What's that story for? Spring break, which I know that grown-ups don't get. Spring break, I think, is a picture of what the Sabbath is supposed to look like for us. Because spring break for people in Chicago is a pre-celebration of summer. Right? You know and you have to know that someday it's going to get warm. And so you go and you speed it up by flying down somewhere where it's warm and sunny. And you go pretend like it's summer for a week. And then you go back and suffer for another, really, frankly, two months of misery. <laughs> you and I are invited in the way that we treat this day, this holy day that God set apart from the very beginning of time. We're invited to fly to Florida, as it were, to fly to heaven much better. Florida's not the place. (laughs) And to experience eternity now, to feast in the heavenly rest that we have in Jesus. And then we go back to work. But we look forward to this day, this day, when we get to celebrate heaven weekly, resting in the finished work of Jesus. Um, I'm going to promise you now we're going to do a Sunday school in December a special one-off on Sabbath practice. So if this hopefully got your wheels turning a little bit, let's wait there, and then we can make some good, you know, non-Christian New Year's resolutions around that. Um, This is good news, guys. It's a practice that points to to the glorious news of the gospel. Rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you invite us weekly to a feast You not only give us permission, but you command us to stop all the stuff we're doing and to look forward and to rest in the heaven that is secure for us through Jesus Christ. Thank you. Lord, you pray that you'd help us to to live into that, to embrace this most precious gift and to see in it meaning not that we could be better workers, not that we could self-optimize, Lord, that we could give up and rest in your finished work. Work this reality into our hearts, we pray. We praise you for your work, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.